the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. So the feast of dedication is Hanukkah. And it says it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus had went to Jerusalem to look at the menorah lights that would have been set up at Hanukkah. And so Jesus obviously thought enough of this feast to keep it. And I think that as I go through this tonight, I believe that you will learn some things that Hanukkah will have a special place in your heart as well, especially what it represents. It's such a powerful meaning behind it, okay? So as we look at this tonight, I want you, as we begin this together, I want you to think about the tabernacle of Moses for a minute. Most of you guys are familiar with the tabernacle of Moses enough that you know that as I talk about it, you don't necessarily have to have a diagram in front of you. So I want you just to picture with me the tabernacle of Moses here laid out. If you were to take a person and lay them on their back on top of the tabernacle, okay, where their head area would be in the Holy of Holies, the chest and torso area would be in the holy place, and then the waist down would be like in the outer court, okay? So just picture that for a moment because God said about us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle, the living, breathing, walking tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. So what God gave Moses, everything has been fulfilled. And let me just stop for a moment and explain that, that it's very important that we understand the Bible from that perspective because there is a perspective that teaches that everything's just kind of like the Old Testament is just gathered up and thrown into the trash and it has no relevance. And just to look at the new, um, I believe that is completely wrong. It does a great injustice to the word of God and will actually hinder you from even understanding the New Testament the way God wants you to. No, Jesus didn't come to throw everything away in the garbage. Jesus came to fulfill it and there's a huge difference. When you understand that everything is fulfilled in Christ, all of a sudden it has deep, rich meaning that we can draw from. And that's what Paul meant when he said that we have these, these roots and these Hebrew roots. And he said that from that root system that there's a nourishing sap that we draw from. And I believe there's depth to the word of God as we understand it. So with that said about the tabernacle, when God gave Moses to, he told him to build the tabernacle and he gave him the revelation of the tabernacle, the Bible makes it very clear that it was not something that God just came up with out of his imagination and gave to Moses, but rather God took what is in heaven and he showed it to Moses to replicate it on the earth. So that right there is a huge revelation. So when you look and study the tabernacle, you understand that it's about heavenly things. And you even see references to it in the book of Revelation. So what I'm talking about tonight about the tabernacle is not something that's done away with. No, it's actually a copy of what's in heaven. So you and I are going to see the actual tabernacle one day, the actual true tabernacle of God. So getting back to this, if you lay somebody down on the tabernacle and their heads in the Holy of Holies, what you'll notice is, is that the altar of incense would be right where their heart is. So God is looking for heart worship. The incense actually speaks of, it's got four parts to it if you study it. 
And it's things like frankincense, I believe off the top of my head, something like galbanum and, and onksia and something else. But there's four parts that are ground up in equal portions that you have to sprinkle that onto a hot coal. That hot coal was in the outer court in the bronze altar where the animals were offered. They would take a hot coal and bring it in and put it there in that golden bowl, the altar of incense, and they would have to sprinkle, the, the sons of Aaron would sprinkle the incense onto it, and it would begin to go up, and it would fill that place with a beautiful fragrance. And that incense that's rising up represents our praise, our worship, our prayer, our intercession. But how many of you guys know that, man, to keep that going in our lives, you've got to have a heart that's on fire. Once your heart loses the fire, what begins to wane is our own personal praise, our own personal worship, and our personal prayer, our personal intercession. So what you see there is in that altar of incense in the chest, number one is we've got to keep the fire burning in our own hearts, and it's our responsibility. God will set that fire ablaze just like he did in the tabernacle of Moses. God lit that initial fire but we have to keep it burning in our own hearts. And so I'm going somewhere with this tonight. And if, you're, if you were to lay somebody on that tabernacle, their left hand would fall on the table of showbread. And it's interesting because of the connection with the heart because when somebody has a heart condition, it's felt through the left arm into the left hand. And that left hand would rest right there on that table of showbread, which is symbolic of the communion table for us today. The communion table is a place where every one of us are going to examine ourselves and make sure that we forgive everybody. How many knows that's a good way to let the fire die is to hold unforgiveness? It's the place where we begin to let the Holy Spirit examine us. We ask God by his word to reveal anything in our lives that's not right. And that's the place that we confess and repent and deal with things. But that, that table of showbread, and, and in the Hebrew it's lechem panim, and it means a, like face to face, the, the, the bread of presence. But it's a place where we deal with things that aren't right. And as we take of that communion table, that covenant meal that we have, there's something about that that deeply consecrates our lives unto God and brings us under the blood of Jesus fresh. It's very powerful. We need, let me say this, we need to apply the blood of Jesus to our lives fresh on a daily basis. We need to paint the blood over our lives and over our families. And I'm telling you, Paul said to the Corinthian church, that the blood of our Passover lamb has been shed, but it's our responsibility to take the blood of the Passover lamb and apply it. And so you have that left hand on that table of showbread, and the right hand would fall on the menorah. And tonight, you know, because of Hanukkah, we did a, a little thing at the beginning of service, and we lit a Hanukkah, which is a nine-branch menorah. And I'm going to talk about that some tonight. But in the tabernacle of Moses, there was a seven-branch menorah. And the right hand would be on that menorah. And so that menorah speaks of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the, the menorah had a knop, a bud, and a bowl that was, that was actually the person that created it 
was supposed to chisel that in throughout it and that middle branch would have had 12 if you count the knot button the bowl and there was four sets of them and then there would be nine on each branch and it totaled 66 god was saying even back in the days of moses he was saying that there would be 66 book of the bible that we would have today isn't that awesome and so it speaks of the word of god it speaks of the light of god's revelation that we have in his word but it also the menorah was was an oil filled um it was filled with oil and it had the wick in it and it would burn that fire and so it speaks of the anointing of the holy spirit and the fire of the holy spirit and so in other words the power of god and we've got to have the ministry of the holy spirit and what's awesome to me is i've studied all this out and i, I could rabbit trail because this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about is the tabernacle but when you were to actually go into the tabernacle it also speaks of the the seven feasts that god gave to israel because the table of showbread is passover and then you go to the menorah and it's pentecost and that's where god gave the sons of israel he gave them um the the word of god initially and then to, uh, you know 1500 years later he gave the holy spirit the church was born but it speaks of the word and the spirit and then the incense altar of incense speaks of the fall feast but i love in the book of revelation because god was speaking to the church of ephesus i'm gonna kind of pick up where i left off last week the church of ephesus was a revival church when paul went through there the first time in ephesus remember nothing much happened but the second time he went through Ephesus was the greatest recorded revival in his entire ministry. Acts chapter 19. Even as he entered the area, there were people that met him there that automatically the harvest opened up to him. And they were baptized in the Holy Ghost. And so Paul saw a two-year revival there. He planted a church there. It was a powerful church. He wrote them the book of Ephesians as a guideline about spiritual warfare and about your family and also about the great promises that god's given us as his people and it, it, but it was a church that was born in the fires of revival now that's significant because when you read in the book of revelation there were many churches but john was ordered by god to to write to seven specific churches even though there were many and the first one he wrote to was ephesus and the message that Jesus said to them in Ephesus was that I know your good works, but he said, I have this against you that you lost your first love. He said that you need to repent and you need to do the things you were doing before. Or he said, I will remove your lampstand. And as I studied that, it really blew my mind. I've preached on this before, but do a Greek study for yourself. And it says there you forsook your first love. First love translates your supreme love feast. So it has to do with the communion table, which is really interesting because the early church, those that have studied the early church and how they met in homes, and it was a lot different than what we see today. But the communion table was every week. There's just no doubt about it in my mind. They met together and took communion. That was just part of what happened but it seems here to indicate in the greek that the church at ephesus began to let the communion table wane and it's, it's interesting because the communion table the bread of presence 
the power of reverencing the blood of Jesus. That communion table is the place where we deal with our sin and we get washed and covered in the blood of Jesus. It's so powerful that if you'll honor that left hand of the table of showbread, it seems to be directly connected to the power of the right hand, that fresh anointing in your life, that fresh revelation. But Jesus said to them, you forsook that first love, and if you don't return doing what you're supposed to be doing, what you were doing before, he said, I'll remove your lampstand. They could lose that fresh anointing. Is this making sense tonight? I believe that there's something to that. I take communion personally daily, and I know as a church when we meet together, we take it. But there's something so hallowed and powerful about the communion table. And I, I don't have an, enough time to really do it justice. But God said through David that he would give us a, a table in the presence of our enemies. Where our heads would be anointed with oil and our cups overflow. As I mentioned earlier, David's mighty men, they were weary in battle. And they ate the consecrated bread. And they, God gave them strength for the battle. The communion table is so powerful. There's something about it that brings us and our families under the blood of Jesus, the protection, the Passover lamb that the enemy cannot steal, kill, destroy. But the power of the blood of Jesus is applied fresh. There's something about the communion table where what represents the body and blood of the Lord is going into our body and blood. There's something about that where the two become one. There's some kind of a union with Christ that's very powerful. And I believe, River of Life, as we have honored the communion table and we've, we've honored the bread of presence, we've reverenced the blood of Jesus, I believe that's why one of the big reasons, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons why God's presence, his glory is here. And not only his glory... But there is a fresh anointing, there's a fresh fire, and revelation. So see, the menorah is there, the menorah is lit, there's oil and there's fire, there's power, but I believe it's connected to that communion table. And then as you go from the waist down and you go into the outer court, that's where you have the laver, you have the bronze altar, and I, I need to move on from that, but... You kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about tonight about this tabernacle. So Jesus was walking through the temple area in winter looking at all the lights, keeping the feast of Hanukkah. And as I talk about tonight, I believe you're really going to be blessed. But let me just say a few things continuing on from last week. Keep yourself very pure. Be careful. See, God is taking River of Life deeper in his glory. You guys could feel that tonight. The presence of God, I mean, there's such a thick glory. And I'm telling you, the glory of God's going to keep thickening and increasing big time. And it's going to produce more and more health and healing. And it's going to take the frustrations out of things in people's lives. God's taking us on a journey going deeper in his glory. But he's been preparing us for this. And he told me last week to tell you to make sure all the things that you've learned that we need to apply those things in our lives, okay? So let me just say, keep yourself very pure 
because we're called to be a holy of holies people we're called to be a glory people and a glory people god the holy spirit is not going to let us have things in our lives that may be some others that are not glory people think that they can get away with if that makes sense not that they can but they think they can but if you're going to go into the glory god's going to require a holiness about us a purity and so let me just warn you to guard your eyes and your mind be careful what's going in the eye gate to not gaze upon things that are lustful or whatever it would be that could defile you defile your mind there's a lot of things out there now there's things especially that children growing up now have access to that we just did not have access to when we were children because of the internet but guard your eyes guard your minds because satan really wants to get in that eye gate and the the gateway of the eyes is interesting because jesus said about the eyes he said if your eye is dark then the rest of your being is dark so somehow there's something to this that the eyes reflect what's in you and if you think about it you probably have noticed that in some people you can see things in people's eyes but guard your eyes guard your mind guard your ears there's things that ears don't need to be listening to amen and keep your body pure i love in hebrews it says that the veil of the the temple was jesus's flesh well we know when he died that veil ripped but it also says that we now that there's a sprinkling of the blood of jesus on our hearts so there's a sprinkling that cleanses us but also it says in hebrews and your bodies wash with pure water there's something so powerful about your body being purified deeply consecrated but we have to guard that don't let things happen don't let things happen with our bodies that defile our temple and there's a scripture in corinthians i don't have it in front of me but it says that if you defile your body your temple that god will destroy the temple and if you think about it that was the warning that god gave to the corinthian church because he was saying look you guys come together and you're taking communion in an un unworthy manner meaning that they were not really reverencing things the way they should and he said that some are getting sick and, and dying prematurely but you have to be careful that you protect the holy things of god you know we're all a priesthood and the in peter's writings he helps us understand that god has called all of us to be a kingdom of priests so all of us are priests unto god and it says also that all of us as we come together corporately we're like living stones that are being brought together to build god a dwelling place a house for his glory to come tabernacle here but when you go home you are still a priest unto god and god wants your home to be a place that's like a little temple a little tabernacle in the hebrew roots i've taught on this before but the home is viewed like a mikdash mayot which means a little sanctuary and god wants your home to be that see for me and my wife that's a very big deal to us a very big deal
is that our home be a place where God's presence dwells, a place that is a tabernacle of his glory. And we'll deal with things we need to deal with, but we, we want that place to be right with God and we want his presence there. So as we keep ourselves pure, guard your eyes, guard your ears, guard your body, keep yourself undefiled by this world. And let me say this, consecrate your home. There's some writings that my wife and I put together. It's on our website under the deliverance page, fnirevival.com. Go to the deliverance page. It's under the downloads, but it has to do with cleansing homes and land. And this came from different pastors that we know that we've talked to, different situations we've had to deal with. But we learned over time how to really consecrate land and a home unto God. It's very powerful and it's very easy. It walks you through it. But I've heard multiple testimonies of people that really took time to consecrate their land unto God and consecrate their home. And they've told me, Pastor, it was amazing. The difference was remarkable. And it is a very powerful thing. It will, when you do that, it will drive hell's forces off and it will bring the glory of God in, okay? So consecrate your home unto God. Let it be a dwelling place where you meet with him. One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is where Samuel slept by the ark. How many of you guys would like the glory to be in your night's rest? And let me tell you, if your home is consecrated and you'll welcome the glory of God, the glory can be in your home and you can sleep in the glory of God. Your prayer life can be in the glory. You won't have to be frustrated because the presence of God is there. Also, let your home be a place of worship and prayer. And I really recommend that you anoint the rooms and begin to speak blessings over your home. It's very powerful. And if you'll consecrate your home, make it a place of continual worship and prayer and speak blessings into it. I believe that the atmosphere of your home will become the atmosphere of heaven and all that hellish influence, all that oppression, all that sterility and darkness can leave. But if people bring in the sin, the glory will leave and a dark, evil spirit will take the place and it will become very sterile and oppressed. So that kind of leads me into the Hanukkah story and then I'll talk about a few other things before we close. So a lot of Christians don't really know the story behind Hanukkah. If they did, I think that it would mean a lot to them. Because this was 167 years before Jesus came. So bef before Jesus came, what God was doing in the earth, he was doing through the sons of Aaron. He was doing through the temple area. This was what was going on, you understand? And so during this time, I, I don't want to backstory it too much where I get bogged down in a bunch of facts, but Alexander the Great died young, having conquered the world, and he basically gave his kingdom to his four generals and let them fight over it. And, there was, and they, were, they ruled up in the European area, the Slavic area over where now modern-day Russia. Another ruled um, in the far, far East area, if I remember right. But the person we're dealing with tonight ruled in the Middle East. Okay. And then there was another ruler, uh, a dominion that was down in like the Egypt down into Africa, that continent, that part of the world. And during this time of this story, if I remember right, 
um, the great battle that was going on, the two strongest kingdoms were in the Middle East and Egypt. And they were fighting. See, that's the thing. A lot of times these rulers are just have such a lust for power. They can't just be happy with the kingdom they have. They've got to constantly be trying to get more wealth and power and conquer other kingdoms. So between the Middle East and the Egypt area, they were warring between each other, trying to conquer. And so in this Middle East area where Israel is, at this time, the Greek culture from Alexander the Great was the dominant culture in the Middle East. Alexander conquered. He began to institute the worship of Greek gods and the Greek way of life. I mean, all of you are familiar with the, whether it be the toga <laughs> or, or, you know, Greek philosophy. So all of this was beginning to really permeate the Middle East. And eventually, a ruler came to power named Antiochus. And Antiochus was, was a weird guy. And he began to rule out of Syria, but his dominion, it was a Greek culture, okay? His dominion was not just the Middle East and Syria, but extended over to where Israel was. He wanted to go down and conquer that uh, Egyptian area, but he couldn't win the battle, so he got so enraged, he started taking it out on Israel. And so as he sought to conquer and subdue Israel completely, he wanted to do, this is very important that you guys get this point tonight. He wanted to do away with anything that had to do with God's culture. Did y'all hear that? That's very important. Anything to do with the word of God and what God was doing in this time. Because this, what I'm about to tell you was what God was in and what he was doing. The circumcision of the children, uh, the study of the word of God, going to temple, all of that, anything to do with God, the kosher diets, the feast, all of that, he wanted to do away with it. And in its place, he wanted to bring in a Greek way of living. He was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals that Moses set in place for the sons of Aaron. This was what God was doing in this day. This was extremely important. He was successful for a time of coming in in a military way and conquering to a degree, and he stopped all temple rituals. People could no longer bring their sin offerings. They couldn't bring their burnt offering. They couldn't bring their peace offerings. He went so far because he was so determined that he was going to eradicate anything to do with the God of Abraham and the culture of God. He wanted to totally do away with it that he went into the temple area and he erected a statue of Zeus. He sacrificed a pig on the bronze altar to defile it. And it was a sacrifice to Zeus. And he took pig's broth from it. And he poured it over everything that he could, including all of the scrolls and everything that was there. He wanted to completely defile this temple. He erected shrines throughout the land. And some people were forced to offer up sacrifices at these shrines as tokens of acceptance 
of this new religion. So he sent his military men throughout the land. And he would go to different regions and he would have them build like an altar to Greek gods. And he demanded that the leaders of the city, the leaders of the area would come out and they had to offer up an offering, a sacrifice to the Greek god. And if they didn't do that, then he would begin to severely oppress them. Some Jews were fine with this transition. They were okay with the Greek culture coming in, but most of them were so deeply troubled that they stayed totally devoted to God, but they were very troubled by what was going on. Those who disobeyed the offerings to the Greek gods were either tortured or they were killed on the spot or they were tortured and killed. Their bodies were mutilated, and while many of them were still alive and breathing, they would be crucified. It was so bad that even the wives had some of the sons that they had circumcised, that they, they killed their sons, and they would literally hang them on the woman as she was crucified on a cross, and she would have to die with her dead son hung to her. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those that were martyred and tortured. And some biblical scholars say that this reference includes those that died during the days of Epiphanies taking a stand for the Lord against this violent assault. That Hebrews 11 honors their sacrifice as they were martyrs for the Lord. Is this making sense tonight? If Epiphanes had been successful at the long-term extinguishing of God's people and God's culture and replaced it with the Greek culture, you have to understand that there would not be a Christmas story to be talking about today because things had to be in place. God had to have a temple. He had to have this culture. Everything had to be there for his son to come into that. And had Epiphanes been successful at eradicating that and replacing it with Greek culture, the son of God could not have been born into a Greek culture and fulfilled his destiny. You see what I'm saying? And this was something that, that Satan tried to do multiple times. We know when Moses was going to be born and, and he came into the world, we know that Satan stirred up Pharaoh to begin to throw all the baby boys into the Nile. Something demonic was trying to destroy Moses because somehow Satan knew that something significant was about to happen. In the same way, when Jesus was born, remember Herod, Satan stirred up Herod to try to go through and slaughter all the baby boys trying to kill Jesus. Again, Satan knew that something significant was going on. And so one of the main things that sticks out to me as I read the story of Hanukkah and begin to think about it from a Christian perspective now I think about it from a fulfilled perspective. I, I begin to see how God has, James 4, 4, let me read it. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he's je he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So it, James says that if you are um, worldly and you love the things of the world and your life becomes like the world around you, James says you are just an adulterous person before the Lord and you're becoming an enemy of God. So that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to do. He wanted to force that every bit of culture, anything to do with God, the God of Abraham, his word, what God was doing in the earth at that time, he wanted to come through and completely do away with it. And then he wanted to bring this Greek culture and replace it with something that would have been very much against the purposes of God. And today, and I'm sure that every generation has said this, but I do believe that in the day that we live today, there is really an attack like this, spiritually speaking. Something is going on in America that wants to do away with any type of Judeo-Christian heritage in our culture. It wants to replace it with all kinds of abominations and horrible things that God specifically and clearly says that he hates it, he's against it. But there's some kind of a war. It really is an antichrist spirit. And in particular, I would say that in this nation, there's definitely something in the way of a Jezebel spirit. But something is trying to wage war to begin to purge out anything to do with God. I mean, it's so stupid and ridiculous that people drive down a road and are offended by a little cross off in a field somewhere. And they'll go to a court system and try to spend a lot of money to get that cross taken down. Friend, that is an antichrist spirit. And there's something, just like in the days of, of this time, which I'm, I'm going to share a little bit more about this, but there's something that's going on today that I see that there's the body of Christ throughout this nation. But sadly... I'm seeing that a lot of people are becoming okay with this cultural shift, just like it was in this time. There were Jews at this time that were okay with um, the Greek culture. They were okay with the transition. They wanted to fit into the world around them. They wanted to fit into the culture that was coming in and be sophisticated and be in the times. But yet God had like a remnant of people that remain faithful to him and i see that today i see that there's there's a large section of the body of christ that has become very worldly that you don't really see a difference in them than you do the world around them the only difference would be that they go to church and call themselves a christian but the bible says in james that they're just an adulterous people and they've become enemies of god but the story of Hanukkah continues on. As this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, began to just massacre and began to martyr many of God's people that wouldn't go along with it. I, as I mentioned before, the crucifixions, um, the, the death toll, it, it just, it was horrible what, what he was doing. But there was a city, if I remember right, is Moedin or something like that, Moedin, Moedin. But there was a particular city 
where one of Antiochus's uh, representatives, one of his military uh, leaders had gone there and they had set up an altar. And again, they wanted somebody there to sacrifice to the Greek gods and they wanted that whole city and region to begin to worship their Greek gods and, and forsake anything to do with the God of the Bible. And one of the, one of the leaders there he was, a, he was a descendant of Aaron. He was a priest. His name was Metahias. And they asked him, would you offer up to this Greek God? And he said, absolutely not. He said, far be it from me to forsake my God and his word. I won't do it. And so another Jew came forward and said, I'll do it. And this was the turning point. Metahias did what the Bible said to do. And those that would worship other gods were to be put to death. And so he struck that guy down and put him to death. Well, that started a war. And Antiochus's um, military began to attack. And they wanted to completely wipe out the Jews and just replace everything. And so uh, Metahias and his sons, the sons of Aaron, he began to cry out, those that are for the Lord, gather unto us and we're going to resist this and so here you have a group of people who have absolutely no military training there's nothing about them that would cause you to think that they would possibly win this war because number one they were outnumbered tremendously number two they had absolutely no training in warfare and number three this was one of the greatest military forces in the earth at this time was this Syrian military. Well, yet, Metahias, they began to gather people unto them that were faithful to the Lord. They refused to compromise. We are not going to go along with this culture shift. We're not going to in any way forsake God. We're not going to forsake his word. What God gave us, we're going to be faithful to it. And so they rallied to him, and they basically began a campaign of what we would call guerrilla warfare against him. And believe it or not, Daniel the prophet seemed to predict this, that there would come a time when God would have to give them a little help. And as I said before, there would not be a Christmas story to tell unless this story took place. And so God saw how the seriousness of it and somehow God strengthened these men and gave them victory. It took three years. It was a three-year bloody war. But in the end, um, Metahias, he ended up dying, but his son Yehuda, they ended up winning this war, and they were able to go into Jerusalem. And that's where you get the phrase, the Maccabees, which means like a hammer. But they nicknamed these men the Maccabees because they were God's hammer, that were hammering back the Syrian army. After three years, they were able to enter into Jerusalem. The sons of Aaron entered into the temple area and they saw all that happened and it broke their heart. They had to take the bronze altar where the pig was sacrificed and just throw it away and they had to rebuild a new bronze altar from scratch and dedicate it unto God. They had to go through and they had to destroy that statue that idol to Zeus and remove it from the temple they had to go in and clean out everything that had been defiled reconsecrate the temple so don't you think about what I'm saying they had to rebuild the altar 
and reconsecrate the temple. And when they went in to reconsecrate the temple, they found that they had a jar of oil. This oil had to be made for, for the priest. It was the first press. It was holy unto God. And there would be like a seal on it that that would be what they would use. That's the only, they had one little bottle of oil. And it should have lasted for one day. And think about all they've been through. I mean, they had just been three years just they saw friends of theirs die it was a very difficult battle they command their heaven now to cleanse this whole temple area and so god gave them a miracle i believe just to encourage them but that little bottle of oil they filled up the menorah and they lit it and even though it should have died out in one day it stayed lit for eight days supernaturally and that was a sign and a wonder to them that god was with them so they ended up being able to re-consecrate the temple. They reinstituted all the offerings that were supposed to be brought. They set things back in motion. And this is what I feel the Lord saying about the Hanukkah story for us first. Is that we've got to be careful that we are consecrated people and we don't allow anything to defile us. There's going to be a lot of pressure, I believe, in the days to come where Satan is going to try to really pressure God's people to accepting things. I think about those that have, have been uh, so persecuted because they refuse to go along with homosexuality. Maybe somebody that owns a bakery or something and, and how they, they target those people. They could go down the road to another bakery. They, they want to target the Christian bakery. They want, they want to go after them. And they go after them and they begin to say, well, you have to make, you know, gay wedding stuff. You have to come in here and honor this homosexuality. And they can't do it. But then there's this great court battle, this, this great pressure. And that's what they were dealing with. What God's people were dealing with in this day was great pressure to forsake God, forsake his word, and begin to go along with the culture around us. And so here's the last three things I wanted to mention. And then we're going to pray for people. And I believe God has a, a really powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit tonight for you. So number one, isn't it amazing that they were able to defeat this army and God gave them this breakthrough? I mean, it was like a Gideon victory, really. Gideon had 300 men and he was going up against something like 100,000 army. And they, and they were, were well-trained. A powerful force but God gave him a supernatural victory there is a grace that you see in this story for victory against impossible odds and I think about David at Ziklag where in 1st Samuel 30 the Amalekites came in and stole everything and I've shared this story recently in a sermon David lost everything all of his men lost everything his men were so upset they were talking about stoning David. They had to blame somebody. And David was upset. He, was, he didn't know what to do. And he got Abiathar to bring him the ephod, which was what the high priest was supposed to wear. And David began to really seek the Lord. And the Lord spoke to David. And he said, go after them. You will overtake them and you will recover all. David did overtake them. 
God gave him a great victory in war. And not only did he recover everything lost, but the spoils of war. So there's something about the breakthrough, supernatural victory, and then it's like great restoration that comes. And I really believe, River of Life, that in the days to come, there's going to be some significant breakthroughs and there's going to be very significant restoration that comes. They had to rebuild the altar and reinstitute worship and prayer. I can't help but think about in the days of Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18 and 19. The children, you know, the people of God at that time began to get so steeped in Baal worship. It was a Jezebel spirit. And let me tell you, the Jezebel spirit is a strong spirit. It's a powerful spirit. It's not something to joke around about. I mean, it is, it is a force to be reckoned with. And that spirit began to really overtake the nation of Israel. It, it affected an entire nation. And Elijah comes in as a prophet of God. He goes up on the Mount Carmel. There was an altar there. Really, technically, the altar was supposed to be in the, the temple only but people still built altars on high places where they worship God. They would offer animal offerings and burn incense to God. But there was an altar there that had been to the one true God. Well, Jezebel came in and tore the thing down. So Elijah calls all the people to come. He rebuilds the altar that Jezebel tore down. And he, he challenges all these prophets of Baal. There were hundreds of them. And he says, I'm going to sit back here. The God who answers by fire is the one true God. And he let them put an offering there. And they prayed and cried out. Nothing happened. And then we know the story. Then Elijah said to douse that thing with so much water that there was standing water because he didn't want them to think that it was some kind of trick. And he prayed to the God of Abraham. And God answered. It was like lightning that shot down from heaven and totally burned. It just totally disintegrated that altar. I'm sure it looked like a meteor hit it. And all the people fell on their face. There's something about rebuilding the altar. And what I felt the Lord saying was this. This is the time for River of Life. Let's begin to rebuild the altar of worship and prayer in our own personal lives. Make sure that our prayer lives are strong and we're really moving with the Lord in this because God's wanting to do something significant. And we need our prayer lives to be strong. And the third thing that stuck out to me in the story, not only supernatural victory, not only that they rebuilt the altar, but they reconsecrated the temple. And I think about Josiah. And it might surprise some people who don't know the Bible that Josiah was a descendant of King David, but he began to reign when he was eight years old. But Josiah had a heart for God like no other king before him except David. Maybe it was his childhood. Maybe it was the innocence of it, that little child. But he just loved God with all of his heart and he wanted to please God. Before him, Hezekiah did do pretty good about bringing a revival. But man, Josiah, listen, let me just read it. He did right in the sight of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 34. He walked in the ways of his father David. He, not, he did not turn to the right nor the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he was 16 years old, he began to seek God. 
And then the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places, all the Asherim, all the carved images, all the molten images. He tore them down. Every altar to Baal, he tore it down. Every incense altar to other gods, he destroyed them. And it says that he broke into pieces and ground into powder and scattered them on the graves of those who sacrificed to them. So he had them killed. He burned the bones of the priest on the altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem from all these false priests and, and things that were satanic that were going on. In the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins, he tore down all the altars and the Asherim and all of that. It says now in verse 8, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, um, and he wanted to repair the house of the Lord. He had a heart because his, his great, great, great grandfather, David, you know, gave the task to Solomon to, re, to build a temple. And this thing had just been dilapidated. Josiah had a heart to purge all of the sin in the land, but then to rebuild and well, restore rather, restore the temple and get it back in its function like it's supposed to be. And he helped oversee the purification and the restoration of not only the temple, but the, um, the priesthood as well. And I love this scripture, and I close with this in Zechariah 3, verse 1. Israel was in captivity in Babylon, and they had to go back to this second temple period, and the priesthood had not been able to be doing what they're supposed to be doing until they return. And Zechariah, the prophet, had a vision. And in this vision, he saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, he just came out of captivity. Of course, he's not going to be where he needs to be. But Joshua, he was clothed with filthy garments. He was supposed to be the priest, but he was defiled. And in verse 4, God spoke and said to those that were standing before him, to this angel, or the angel spoke rather, remove the filthy garments off him. Again, he said to him, I have taken your iniquity away and clothed him with the festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel Lord was standing by. So there was something there about purifying the priesthood and purifying the temple and restoring the temple and getting things back the way it was supposed to be. And I remember in the days of Solomon, you guys know the story, when that temple was dedicated, the glory of God came in so thick the priest couldn't even stand to minister. And this is the last thing I want to share is just that it, you guys are familiar with the modern revivals today, some of the different revivals going on. And it really stuck out to me because I know from the word of God, like a deep priestly consecration, deep priestly cleansing, that God uses the communion table. God uses being anointed with oil. And he also uses water immersion. And it's interesting to me that there's two revivals that have broke out in Georgia. One of them has to do with miracle oil. 
that oil was appearing out of a Bible. And that oil went all over this nation and even to other parts of the world. There was something about that as people were being anointed with oil and, and oil that came from directly from the Lord through that Bible. And another was the, the glory fire that's in the water of the baptismal there in Dawsonville. I was able to go and be a part of some of this. It was very powerful. But as people are being water immersed, there's a glory flame. And this is not isolated to this revival. In actual fact, most revivals that I even know about, this has been a very common occurrence where the, the, the glory of God is so strong in the water that people are getting immersed and then it's like they're being fall out under the power or they experience the power of God in an awesome way. But it's interesting to me that those three things, you're seeing the oil and you're seeing the water immersion in revival. I believe it's a sign of the times and a sign of what's coming that God is purifying a bride, getting us ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to meet him in the air and be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that's something that has come back. I know here, we have a couple times a year, we have a deep consecration service. We've, we fast as a church. We repent of everything. And we, we come together and really take communion in a special way. And you can just feel it. God is cleansing us. He's doing a work. And we go through, my wife and I anoint everybody, really pray over you. And then people, we say you can come and be water immersed. And most people do. And in that water, the glory of God's been so strong. People tell me I feel different. Man, so that was powerful. Something happened. What's happening is, is God is purifying us and getting us ready to meet him in the air. But this is the, the last thing is this. Hanukkah is prophetic about the end times. Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture and type of the Antichrist to come. And how he erected a, an a, a idol to Zeus in the temple. And how the Antichrist, the Bible says that he's going to erect an idol in the temple and demand Israel to worship that idol. And that idol is going to have some kind of supernatural ability to speak. And I do not believe that some kind of a robot or something that wouldn't impress anybody. That wouldn't even impress a child. No, it's going to have some kind of supernatural ability about it. There's a power. There's a spirit about that thing. But there is, this is, so Hanukkah's story is important to understand because Satan is trying right now. Why do you think that there's so much warfare going on in the earth? And I'm going to say this briefly because I want to pray with people. But think about it for a minute. We know the Bible says in the end times that there's going to be a one world government eventually. That's what Satan's trying to force. Why do you think that, that the, the governments that are democratic, where there's freedom, think about it for a minute. How much turmoil has been in our government? Satan wants globalization. He wants a one world government now. And he's doing everything he can to push an agenda. And I hate to say it, but I think most people with any common sense can see it, that there is a group of people in the political arena and the media that are in bed with this globalization and trying to push it. 
But then as God's people pray, God throws in these wild cards and it just messes everything up for them, doesn't it? You have some wild-eyed businessman coming in <laughs> that doesn't care what anybody thinks, right? And, but you see, you see this, this globalization, something trying to be forced here in America. And then think about the other democratic nations. Think about Israel. Israel is, is the only true free place, really, truly, in the Middle East. But think about it for a minute. Israel's having to go through a third election. It's unprecedented in their entire history. They're having to go through a third election because something, some kind of a force is trying to get Netanyahu out of power. Because he's like what we have here. He's not going to go along with a lot of things. Do you see what I'm saying? And then look at it for yourself. Go and look this up. Look at England and what England's been going through with this whole Brexit. There's just, there's something stirring we're seeing end-time prophecy coming to pass, end-time events, and you're seeing such a push. I mean, who would have ever thought that in America that it would become, in my lifetime, this has happened, that it would become a place that would force homosexuality and sick, disgusting perversions on us. And if you don't go along with it, they're going to come after you. And they're not content with perverted things like homosexuality, they want to push it where sex with children is normal. That's where they're going with it. Anything that is an absolute abomination to God is what they're trying to cram down people's throat. It's demonic is what it is. And God's people, his remnant, you're going to see just like you did in the Hanukkah story. You're going to see some people are going to be sellouts. They're going to fall away from the faith. That They're not sold out to God at all. They're going to be okay with it. They're going to go along with sexual perversions. They're going to go along with murdering babies. They're going to become very worldly and fall away. And they're going to go along with that. But you know what? God still has a remnant just like he did in the days of the Maccabees. That there's like a, some kind of a war cry in the spirit realm. And it's like God's remnant people will rally together. Not in a physical confrontation. But it's a spiritual battle to come together and pray and see great revival and that's what i believe is coming just like in that day god's going to give us not just river of life i'm saying this in the greater body of christ but god himself is going to give us great revival and what's going to happen is in revival what was impossible will become possible because it's not going to be by human might or human effort it's going to be by the spirit of god and god's just going to open up the harvest He's going to pour out his spirit and things that have seemed like they're absolutely impossible are just going to break forth and God's going to do it just like he did with the Maccabees that they got a supernatural victory and God restored things. So I'm going to go ahead and close down these recordings and all that. We're going to pray for people. If you want prayer tonight, I believe God's mightily going to move and touch you. I really feel, get prayer tonight. I feel like God's wanting to do something significant in our hearts. And I feel like that there's going to be something the Holy Spirit is going to do in prayer as my wife and I pray over you to begin to put in your heart, all, all of our hearts, some kind of a burning fire from heaven. The, Holy, the Bible says Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Ghost and with fire. And there's going to be something in our hearts that's going to help us to, to stand strong in these last days and not compromise. Just like we, you know, we read tonight about Metahias. 
you know, the Maccabees, they refused to go along with what was going on in the same way that God's going to give us like a strength, a grace, a fire in us to live a holy life, even in these difficult times and to be strong in the Lord. So let's go ahead and get ready for prayer tonight.